Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that is coming to the Big Apple in less than a month. So soon. Today we have me, Ambria, and Laura, and so yeah, we wanted to highlight um, our live show because I feel like we highlight it at the end of the show, and in case y'all like log off before <laughs> before we get there, uh, it is coming up in New York City. If you're in and around the New York City area, you should totally come. It's August 11th, a Saturday at 7 p.m., at Star Bar in Brooklyn. Yeah, obviously, if you're anywhere within a horse's ride distance of New York City and you are not coming to our show, it's because you turned off the podcast too early and you didn't hear about it. Like, that's the only reason I can think of. Precisely. Exactly. <laughs> you can buy tickets online at seasonofthebee.com. We have a whole section that's like live show. Um it's $15 ahead of time and $20 at the door. And we only have space for 65 seats. Um, I think we're almost at halfway at this point. So get your tickets before it sells out. It should be really fun. Um, it will be really fun. Yeah. And it should be. But it also will be. <laughs> um. Exactly. There's going to be a dance You'll be party hanging after. Out with us. Yes. Oh, yeah, there's a dance party afterwards. Also, there's a Facebook event page if you're bad at remembering things like I am, if your head is screwed on the wrong way and you're looking backwards all the time. Yes. Um, there is a Facebook event page so you can get that handy reminder. Exactly. And um, it is going to be accessible. So there are stairs right at the entranceway. But if you go through a side entrance, which um, we can coordinate with you, if you need any accommodations, uh, there is an elevator to help folks be able to get in no matter their ability. Yes. Accessible. Yeah. So come. We want to meet you. We want to hang. We want to have a good time with you all. We promise to make utter fools of ourselves. I mean, like, I feel like I don't do anything other than make a fool out of myself. <laughs> Right. It's guaranteed. Like I led today, I led a wellness day with teens. I work with teens and I thought that it was going to be like this amazing event that they were going to be grateful that they were getting paid to like do yoga and learn all these things about wellness. And they hated the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, wow, uh, I just fell flat on my face there. <laughs> I'm going to be a junior high social studies teacher, so I look forward to also planning many things that I think are going to re be received with enthusiasm and warmth, and um, yeah, and, and just, you know, getting proven wrong and embarrassing myself, so. Uh, I had to, like, remind myself not to take it personally and be like, it's just teen stuff. Teens being teen stuff. It's fine, Laura. They don't hate you as a person. <laughs> It was bad though. It was bad. You have to find you have to find out what the teens want first. It's so true. And then they can't reject it. Exactly. You're like you you chose this. I mean, they still yourself. can reject it and they may reject it. No. Mm -mm. <laughs> mm -mm. Not allowed. <sighs> there is a contract. Yeah. 
Students, it's time to learn about the social contract. Yes, exactly. Welcome to hell. Yes. Um, Any hoodles, you're probably like, what's this episode? (laughs) Well, guess what? Any hoodles. (laughs) We are continuing our conversation with Walida, Rain, and Mariam from last week. So if you haven't checked it. Yeah, it's amazing. If you haven't checked out the first one, um, Foreign Policy in the Left Part 1, which came out last week, we highly recommend you go back and check it out. But um, still, if you... If you aren't able to do that, um, some little context for you. So we, uh, Walida actually came to us and asked us to highlight this particular issue, meaning what do we as leftists, what is our role when it comes to foreign policy? Because she was noticing, um, particularly with the U.S.'s role in Syria, that the left was just really quick to align themselves with any leftist group in in this instance in the Middle East or West Asia. And we really need to think about that and think about the other oppressive hierarchies that are in place in, in those on-the-ground dynamics. So um, we ha- had some background information about Assyrians and... Yazidis, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, and Shabaks and other um, indigenous and marginalized groups throughout West Asia who maybe don't get the same sort of awareness that other groups do. And so in our in the first part, we talked about looking to the margins and looking to who is the most disenfranchised and the most um, oppressed within the region and and looking at why that is. Because it is possible to be a leftist group, uh, a socialist group in, even, and be someone who reinforces those hierarchies. So we've been learning a lot from them so far. We're going to dive back in. Anything to add, Ambria? No, um, just like... As I've been expressing, I'm super grateful to have gotten to have this conversation. Um, It's given me so much to think about. um, And I've been thinking a lot about like colonialism and the hegemony of the thought that comes along with it and the narratives that come along with it and like how we escape those narratives and how often we fail to um, even on the left. Um, so I'm still thinking a lot. I'm still saying, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, this is for all of us, it's going to be a process because we're entrenched in a colonial state. We're entrenched in an imperial state. And literally, we've been socialized. If you have if you were born in the United States, you've been socialized since birth to have your mind think in these ways. So there's a lot of unlearning that needs to happen, and we're really grateful to Walida, Rain, and uh, Miriam for helping us unlearn in that way. So with that, we'll jump back in and start with this new question. Drum roll. Just kidding. There's no drum roll. <laughs> I was wondering if any of you would be interested in speaking to the ways in which globalized capitalism shows up in these ways and either exacerbates the imperialism that is experienced on the ground or or the ways in which like the 
corporatization of essentially the arms industry, but also just generally how we see money moving through through this same issue. Oh Man, yeah, you're you're asking <laughs> such good questions here. I mean, <laughs> I, I I went on a rant already, and <laughs> um, I the, so, the, so I. <laughs> Rant, 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 rant. So, uh, so there's one example that I wanted to, so that's a good question. The way money is moving through Iraq is that we're spending trillions of dollars and not know where it's going. Um, And the same thing will probably end up happening in Syria if it's not already. We're arming people, we're selling weapons. It's very profitable for the weapons industry. Yes. Um, I mean, war in general is, but like Iraq (laughs) and Syria especially is, wow, are people getting rich for as long as this goes on. And what that's turning into is arming the most powerful and disarming the least powerful. Actually, um, one of the ways that's expressed itself in terms of land grab is, well, kind of the story of ISIS and how ISIS moved into the Nineveh Plain, where the Yazidis and Shebek and Assyrian populations are basically the majority. It's an incredibly heterogeneous area in Nineveh. It's, you know, the capital of ancient Mesopotamia. And these people have been there for thousands of years. And Rain, I want you to actually tell the story about specifically the armed, the very well-armed and very well-trained by um, you know Western contractors, what they did in their fight against ISIS, quote unquote, for the Assyrians in the Nineveh Plain. Sure. So in the in the weeks leading up to um, ISIS's invasion of the Nineveh Plain in August of 2014, um, the Assyrians and Yazidis in the Nineveh Plain were systematically disarmed by the Kurdish Peshmerga. And then when these residents started to express concerns, because of course they'd been hearing, you know, uh, the threat of ISIS and this looming um, invasion, the Peshmerga offered them reassurances. And I mean, this has been widely documented um, in both the Assyrian and Yazidi community where former residents of the Nineveh Plain, or or even in some cases those who have returned, will testify and say that they were personally told by the Peshmerga that they would be protected in the event of an attack and that there was no need to fear. I did interview one young Assyrian man who was 17 at the time, um, and he was living in a town called Al-Qush, which is in the northern um, part of the Nineveh Plain. And he said that a Peshmerga soldier told him that they would let Erbil fall, which is the unofficial capital of the um, Kurdistan region, before they would let the Nineveh plain fall. Um, And then unfortunately, what ended up happening was the Peshmerga withdrew without notifying the local populations, basically in the middle of the night. And so the following day, when people realized that ISIS was approaching and then they see that they've been abandoned, you know, they they obviously felt the chill of betrayal and then they were forced to flee um, in most cases with um, nothing more than um, the clothes on their back to use that cliche. And, and just to put things um, into perspective, I was recently in Jordan where I interviewed a number of refugee families. One of them was from a town called Baghdadah. 
um, that's also referred to as Karakosh, but the Assyrians know it as Baghdadah. So it's in the southern part of the Nineveh plain. And when I asked them, you know, at what point did you know that um, that ISIS was coming and that you'd been abandoned? Um, and they told me a really horrific story of how, you know, one, the, the head of the household, he was a, a young man, he was driving down the street in Baghdad and they heard an explosion. And so they drive towards the scene to see what had happened. And what they were told was that there were two young boys um, who were Assyrian, so seven and eight years old, that had been playing soccer. And they were struck by a mortar. And all that was left of them was gathered literally into um, an empty bag of chips mm. and delivered to their families. And then, you know, the word just spread around the town. They realized that the Peshmerga had left them. And so, you know, they rang the church bells and, and everyone just in, in a sort of frenzy fled. And so these communities, not only were they targeted by ISIS, but they were also betrayed by the Peshmerga, who are often presented as their protectors or their saviors. And, and that's simply not the and case. And armed. Yeah. And armed specifically to do so. They, they're armed as the sort of like efficient... Um, militia that is more efficient and, and, you know, does more to protect Iraqis yeah, and yeah. Assyrians than the yeah. Iraqi central government. Yeah. Well, there's a reason for that, but yes. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason for that. Yeah. So it's unfortunate. And then now, you know, as the Nineveh Plain is an area that's contested between the um, Iraqi central government and the Kurdistan regional government, I mean, security is, the security situation is still not stable, even um, you know, close to two years after its liberation, half of the Nineveh Plain is under um, Peshmerga occupation, despite federal orders to withdraw um, in uh, late 2017. And the other half is um, under, you know, federal jurisdiction with the Assyrian militia, the Nineveh Plain Protection Units, um, managing the security there. So it's, and, and, and so you can imagine how difficult that is for those that live there and experience that betrayal. And of course, it's it's a reason why so many have not gone back because they simply do not trust um, the Peshmerga. And of course, they don't trust Iraqi forces either. So um, the, the security situation is still unstable. And it's one of the main reasons why so many have yet to go back. Mm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, um, a question I have about the um, the situation on the ground that you're describing right now is when we as uh, leftists who are trying to figure out what to think about these sorts of things, I think you all gave us a very powerful tool a little bit earlier when you said, look at the people who are the most powerless in the society, who are uh, marginalized and minoritized the most. Um, I want to uplift that for one thing, because that's super, that's an incredible tool. Uh, but also when we want to find that out, how do you recommend we go about doing that? Where do we find the information that you just gave us? How, how do we track that down? Okay, so I will shamelessly plug um, my organization. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Assyrian Policy Institute. So of course we are very new. We're, you know, we're in our infancy, but um, in the you know, coming weeks and months, um, we hope to have all of this information easily accessible and digestible um, for all on our website. So that's assyrianpolicy.org. But if you're looking for something right now, 
there was a report that was published by the Assyrian Confederation of Europe on the day of the Kurdish referendum um, in September 2017 that I co-authored. It's called Erasing Assyrians, and it's available at erasingassyrians.com. Um, it's a really, I mean, it's 115 pages, um, but it's very comprehensive. <laughs> and, well, with really good subheadings, yeah. so you, you could actually, it's so well organized, you could just click on the thing you want to read most about. Yeah, it's a very so yes don't let that page count like screw you yeah yeah yeah. I've had a lot of people open the document and when they say that it's 115 pages they're like oh I'm not reading this and I'm like no it's like it's not that bad so so that's and I always feel a little awkward you know plugging things that I've I've worked on but um I it's great thank you um we did write that document after realizing that that so much of this stuff was unknown and, and that there really was nowhere for people to go to um, to learn about this stuff. So, so yeah. We're very glad that we get the opportunity to learn about this stuff today. I know I am. I say we, yes. but. You can speak <laughs> for me, Ambria, anytime. Me, myself <laughs> and Laura yes. are super grateful. Yeah. Can I ask another question? Sorry. Of course. Yes, um, please. Cool. No, sorry. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> do you see this occupation? I mean, I I don't know if, if occupation is the right word, but these, these ways in which imperialism is playing out and perhaps occupation is the right word. But do, do y'all know any ways that it affects people among gender lines and like where where do we see this affecting people differently or similarly sure i can i can chime in here unless mariam and walita you guys want to um take a shot at this no go for it i just wanted to um say that you know when i um when i was doing my interviews i interviewed someone who was the head of um a women's organization, uh, like a civil activist, uh, and in post two thousand three, and you know most most um, literature on this will tell you the the biggest victims in a war zone are women and children, mm-hmm. but women, right? So she was basically telling me that post two thousand three Iraq was basically a prison for women. That's what it felt like, yeah, because the situation got so so much worse because of who was being placed in power. And because, I mean, we know that war zones and imperialism play out on women's bodies mm. first. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a lot to do there. And, you know, it's hard because you have to find these organizations because a lot of times they can't just function so out in the open, sure. right? Like it's it, so many like underground things are are in place or happening to, you know, um, get women safety, get, get them to safety and, and uh, things of that sort. So it's really like, you have to, you, you have to read these things to truly understand what was going on or like to even talk to, she's, she's the head of this, um, it it was the, uh, Iraqi, uh, women's freedom organization or, or the Organization for Iraqi Women's Freedom, something like that. But she's she's based in Canada, but she's from Iraq, and she lived there in post-2003. 
but has a lot of reports and things like that uh, that are that were honestly I was I was horrified when I was interviewing her. Mm. But then I'm not going to get into uh, on vulnerable minorities because I know Rain has a lot of information on especially post ISIS and Yazidis and Assyrians. So I'll let her take over there. Um, so I think, I mean, the issues that, and, and I'll speak specifically about Assyrians because that is the group that I obviously have more experience with. So when I was in Iraq in 2017, um, I did have the opportunity to interview a lot of women. And of course, as Assyrians, they're affected by all of the injustices and you know discriminatory policies and practices that Assyrians have to deal with but it's worse because they're women. And so they're, they're second-class citizens, not only as Assyrians, but also um, in many cases as, as females. And so one of the um, interviews that comes to mind um, is a woman that I met in Sersing, which is an Assyrian village in the province that's uh, known today as Duhok. And so when I interviewed her in 2017, um, you know, she talked to me about all of the difficulties that um, she faced in finding employment, for example. Now, it's difficult for Assyrians to find employment in, you know, uh, under KRG jurisdiction because there's a lot of pressure, you know, to assume membership of the Kurdistan Democratic Party. If you're not a member of the KDP, you won't have as many job opportunities um, so there's that, but then there are also less opportunities available for women. So when I talked to this uh, to this young woman who was in her mid-20s or uh, late 20s, she said that she had graduated four years prior with a degree in administrative law, but she had never been employed. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a result, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert in, in mental health, but what she expressed to me was that she felt that she was depressed and that this was one of the causes. And, um, you know, she'd been married for a couple of years and wanted to start a family, but she said to me that she doesn't want to have children and especially daughters in Iraq because she didn't want them to have the same experiences that she did. And she stated firmly, you know, that that she didn't see a future for herself in the country anymore. I mean, you can just, as she described her everyday life to me, it was, you know, wake up, do housework, then I go to my, you know, sister-in-law's house, and I go to my cousin's house, and it's just repeat the cycle, you know, Monday I'll go here, Tuesday I'll go here. And there was nothing meaningful. She didn't feel that she was living a dignified life. And then a year after I met her in Iraq, um, I was really sad to find her living as a refugee in Jordan. Um, but I also understood the choice that she made um, in deciding to leave. So it is, uh, you know, women, especially Assyrian women, really have a, have a difficult time finding a meaningful place in society. And so obviously this is not something that can be resolved overnight, but there, there certainly needs to be some sort of change to, to give these women that, that sense of, of dignity. Yeah, and, and even... Um, Mariam, I, I just want to touch on something. She mentioned the quota system, um, which is, is a failure on, on many fronts. So these are seats that are reserved for minorities, um, including Assyrians and Yazidis, in both the Iraqi and, and Kurdistan regional government parliaments. Um, and so these quota seats guarantee female representation. At least one of the five parliamentarians that are elected have to be female. 
but many Assyrians believe it, and women especially believe that um, these political parties have used the the quota system just to earn a greater number of seats, and they nominate women who oftentimes lack the background and skills needed to fill, fulfill such a position. And so naturally, Iraqi politics are dominated by men. And so it's, uh, it's difficult for women to really, I guess, secure proper representation um, in, in parliament and, and otherwise. So I'll, I'll leave it there if somebody else wants to chime in. I'll add one more thing about women. My job in Iraq in 2011, I was the director of a, of a project that was meant to incorporate women's and girls' rights into the Iraqi school curriculum. And that meant meeting with ministers of education, uh, school principals, various uh, education administrators at all levels of government, federal, local, uh, regional, and they were all men. So I had to convince, my job was to convince a bunch of men <laughs> to let <laughs> girls' rights be taught in schools. And I was met with, well, women's rights are human rights, and we already teach human rights, so we're not going to do that. Um, that. That's what I was met with. Um, <laughs> it was extremely difficult. And, you know, Iraq is, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, we have to empower women and help them realize their rights. No, women already know what their rights are. We are mm -hmm. born understanding we are free. Mm -hmm. We are made into slaves, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the goal for, at least the way I see it, is not empowering women. That's a bit condescending. But it's, it's basically disempowering men, kind of. I mean, my, I changed the project when I was there. Instead of focusing on teaching women what their rights were, um, I changed it so that young boys would learn what girls' rights were. Because um, until you change how they think about things and how they view things, they're going to grow up into men with power who have never thought about such a thing. So for me, it starts with, with teaching young boys, not teaching young girls. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I'll add is Yazidi women... Yazidis come from a much poorer society, like they're, they're the poorest segment, among the poorest segment of Iraqi society. So there, there's a class element to this where, you know, Assyrians often were kidnapped for ransom by ISIS, um, male and female, children, parents, what have you. Yazidi women were taken as, you know, sex slaves. They were taken as sex slaves. It's a really disturbing topic, but and I won't yeah. go too much into it, but let's just say girls of all ages um, were forced into sexual slavery. Um, the older ones would just be regular slaves for, you know, other other women who were members of ISIS or men that were in ISIS. So, so the Yazidi women, the trauma they've endured is truly unique when it comes to um, what women have endured in Iraq. And that's another, that's another layer of this, you know, the American war in essence directly played into that. It, it, it destroyed this community. Um, there's other communities that have been destroyed. Mandians are another one that basically don't exist in Iraq anymore. They're, they're disciples of John the Baptist. They're, they're uh, an eth uh, a religious minority. They're pacifists, so they, wouldn't, they, they, don't, they don't fight. And they were such an easy target for ISIS. And because of the American war, there's virtually none of them left in Iraq, and they've been there for thousands of years. So it's, it's just a destruction that's immeasurable and heartbreaking. Thank you for sharing that. Rain, I know you have to go, but we wanted to thank you for being on 
um, season of the bitch and sharing your knowledge with us. We hope you have a great and lovely day and we'll definitely link to the resources you said. We appreciate you taking the time to come talk to us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'll uh, be sure to listen to the rest of the interview when it's up. Uh, <laughs> <Thanks. laughs> Take care guys. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you. get here how did we get to where we are <laughs> oh, oh my God. okay so <laughs> let's I, see <laughs> can I just uh how did we get here I guess okay. I meant how did we get to the topic that we're on <laughs> I think you took it as like oh I please took it explain as, like, 
Oh, uh, West Asian history up to this point. Um, well, no, no I, that's, I, I, I meant like I thought of Iraq specifically mm-hmm. um, because so much misinformation, even in the lead up to the invasion, was out there and it was so prevalent, right? And it's it's kind of seeped into this like larger rhetoric that, you know, Iraq looks the way it does today because Iraqis don't know how to democratize and they don't know how to get along. And, and you know, these, these animosities are ancient and they're too sectarian and et cetera, et cetera. But really what we, what, what we really need to look at is actually, you know, American foreign policy invasion and occupation and that those the role those two things played in sectarianizing Iraq and basically what I mean by that is just divide and conquer Mm -hmm. right like you know where you break these people up into these arbitrary groups and then you institutionalize this into an actual political system right and this is and you know this had huge repercussions for the Iraq you see today, right? It's it's not a matter of just like looking at today and thinking, oh, well, these people are just, you know, it's all chaos. Well, it's not. The, a very specific policies led us here, right? And so, and this is why earlier when you asked the question about capitalism and global capitalism and imperialism, I thought it was such an important question because we really need to think about this link between democracy promotion, which is what, you know, America first said, you know, first they said they were going in to look for weapons of mass destruction, you know, security, whatever, and then quickly changed to democracy promotion. Um, so this link between democracy promotion and neoliberalization is very, very important. This mm. isn't about promoting democracy. This is about geopolitics and right. neoliberal capitalism couched in the rhetoric of democracy promotion or democratic nation building. If democracy was the end goal, you wouldn't install it through a shock and awe campaign mm. where you institutionalize violence and stifle grassroots resistance by labeling it as insurgents or enemy combatants. Iraqis wouldn't be treated like criminals or as people who have no politics, right? Instead of nation building, what you saw in Iraq was actually nation destroying, right? So first you dissolve the state and then you claim to debacify, but really you just remove the entire security apparatus. And then you entrenched violence in the political arena because all these militias were running around, both domestic and foreign based, which were being armed by some by America, some by other, you know, other players, other regional powers, right? And then America brings in these exiles you know, uh, who had no popular base, like I said earlier, but, you know, they were brought in because they fulfilled this American agenda, but they they weren't democratic at all. These Iraqis had nothing to do with picking them or seeing them as people who they wanted to rebuild Iraq. And then what this spelled out was disastrous for vulnerable minorities like Yazidis, like Syrians, who had no militias at the time to speak of in this arena of violence, right? But like, you in this in this order that you see um, um this and this isn't new right america has a long history of supporting friendly tyrants in the global south they have mm. you know their relationship with saudi arabia for one if you cared about democracy i mean you know right. 
why are you besties with Saudi Arabia, right? And there's a long history of supporting autocratic regimes and undermining democratically elected but undesirable leaders, right? And the only reason for this is to impose a market economy, opening up, opening them up to, you know, a liberal world system. And so we really have to look at this link and how what this spells out on the ground for people. And usually these are disastrous for the most powerless, like Yazidi women, right? Or there's layers of oppression, right? You're mm-hmm. you're a Syrian, so you're oppressed, like Rain said, but then if you're a woman and you're a Syrian, then you're really the margins of the mar- margins there, right? Absolutely. Do you, uh, would you all be interested in talking about movements that you do want to uplift, work that people are doing uh, in the regions that we've been talking about, uh, maybe grassroots, any grassroots organizing that is happening, or even just any notable people that you know of um, in the region? Is that something you'd be interested in talking about right now? Yes, there are people i don't i don't know that there are like very successful groups on the ground either in iraq or in syria that are that are resisting a lot of what's happening very successfully um i can tell you that when you talk to people there they know exactly what's happening and what's going on and they understand what iraq has become they understand what syria has become i mean you you talk to some syrians and they they want bashar al-assad to stay because he represents a sort of stable um secular government mm-hmm. all the violence belongs to the state it's, a, it's there's state violence there's not random violence that you get with with random terrorist um, organizations for example um iraq was very similar you, you talk to iraqis and they say well yeah saddam was a dictator but goodness we didn't have all yes. this mess you know when yeah. he was around so it's really shifted Which the viewpoint awful, of a lot of people right? like it's so sorry to interrupt it's so awful that your 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 two options are whether are, are the violence on a mass scale that you saw in 2003 and Saddam Hussein. Like, Iraqis yeah. deserve better. They deserve more. They're entitled to more. Right? It's yeah. just it's such an there awful, are, fake, like, option. It's not, re- it's not a real option. So no. there, there, are, there are student groups that exist in both places. There are political parties and civil society groups that belong to the minoritized groups, the Yazidis, the Assyrians. Mm-hmm. Um, often they work in concert with each other. There are Kurdish uh, civil society groups that fight against the intense and enmeshed corruption of the Kurdistan regional government, specifically the KDP. Um, there are, I'm not quite so sure about Kurdish movements in Syria. Most of that it seems to be focused on you know, building a sort of more autonomous region in the north, which is coming with its own problems and how they are treating the uh, Assyrians there. But um, these groups exist. So one of the phenomena that you see, and I doubt this is specific only to Iraq, I think America has done this in places where it wants to uplift its own voices rather than those of any independent groups, is we see grassroots groups mobilizing. We see students getting together, women getting together, marginalized groups getting together and trying to build grassroots organizations and civil society organizations. It's done with mostly volunteer labor. Um, Most of these people also have more than one full-time job, some of whom I know. And what they're seeing is, you know, 
Kurdish, um, much better funded, but Kurdish funded Assyrian or Yazidi groups come in to speak on their behalf instead. And those are the voices that are being uplifted there. So mm -hmm. for example, in Iraq and the Kurdistan regional government, and, and this is similar to what's happening uh, with uh, the YPG uh, in Syria right now. So, you know, I'm speaking about one, keep in mind, similar patterns are happening in Syria as well with that Kurdish ethno-nationalist movement, is, is they'll see an Assyrian political party that wants to have its own security forces, develop its own education curriculum, take care of its own villages, and they'll say, no, 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 here's a better funded one. And these are the ones that we're going to fund. And we're going to marginalize your efforts as much as possible because we don't want any independent voices. We want to speak for your, on behalf of the Syrians. We want to speak on behalf of Yazidis. Um, so seats that are meant to be reserved for Yazidis or Assyrians in parliaments um, or, or ministries are given to Yazidis and Assyrians who are loyal to the general Kurdistan project and they marginalize any independent efforts. Um, start uh, wells and uh, help with rebuilding and redeveloping farmland. They'll come in and do it right next door. And here's the thing, so they'll do it right up until our project can no longer go on and then they'll up. You'll see like I picture somewhere like half finished electrical grids or water mains that sort of mm. go around the village instead go to the, directly to the Kurdish ones, or they'll they'll let certain areas go undeveloped um, so that Assyrians can't physically live there anymore. They'll leave. Um, you know they don't see for themselves. They'll leave and then they'll send Kurds to go and just take over that, that land and then they'll start redeveloping it. Mm. So. What you see is what you see is groups trying to build civil society on their own terms with their own voices, but being supplanted by those who are instead being directly paid by or supported by the actual oppressor group. So Dan Hussein did the same thing. I mean, his right hand man was Tariq Aziz. Tariq Aziz was an Assyrian Arab nationalist, you know, but he was used as an example for how Christians are treated well in Iraq, uh, Iraq and. And you know, you're always gonna have those groups. So it's, it's not easy to figure out who to listen to or who to talk to, which is why it's important to let these people speak for themselves. Mm. Um, you know, not, you don't listen to um, Arabs on what's best for, for Kurds. You listen to Kurds. You don't listen to Kurds on what's best for Yazidis or Assyrians. You listen to the Assyrians that are on the ground and building up these movements. So this is why I wanted to take the approach of, we have to be careful period, when we take sides and we start uplifting voices in these foreign conflicts that we know very little about just because they happen to meet certain criteria we have in our head. They're leftists, they're anti-imperialists, so on and so forth. It's so important, as I think Mariam was talking about earlier, to listen to the minoritized powerless groups. How are they experiencing this? How are they living under, under what's happening right now? And that's where the truth lies. And the most powerless groups, it's true for the U.S., like domestically and it's true for everywhere else mm -hmm. absolutely so i wanted to ask one more question and then we'll open it up for any final thoughts or anything that we hadn't covered that you wanted to cover um and then respect your time and have you go on with your lovely day um <laughs> So I was I wanted to ask a question about climate change as it relates to this as well because there there are a lot of people who who think that particularly in Syria that climate change is playing such a massive role in in everything that's happening and 
so I just wanted to know, because we're talking about all of these different layers, I didn't know if it was something that people on the ground, what people are thinking about climate change, both as it relates to their own experiences um, and lived experiences, as well as whether whether we're seeing these connections again between imperialism and what's happening um, with our global climate. Yeah, so in Syria in particular, there's there's this um, sort of framework that's developed around how climate change exacerbated the Syrian civil war. Um, I would argue America had a lot also to do with the Syrian civil war. <laughs> yes. um, just like it just like it had a lot to do with uh, even the Baptists taking power um, in Iraq. I mean, the United States was, was responsible for that. So um, the, the story goes like, okay, so climate change is affecting Syria. It's affecting Syrian farmlands. They're, they're having droughts. They're not able to uh, grow as many crops as they used to. And it's causing severe economic distress and anxiety in the regions where there aren't major cities. So a lot of the people are moving to the cities and leaving these areas. Um, and that's, that's causing, you know, conflict, just like it would anywhere else when basically refugees are coming into your, uh, where you live and, and the, the cities are not capable of handling them all. So I, I, I think climate change, and honestly, I don't know enough about it to say that, yes, this is the defining factor, but it, does, it has affected the climate in Syria. It's affecting the climate in Iraq as well, um, just due to just all the garbage. <laughs> I mean, the garbage piles up and it's burned in the open air in Iraq that I saw. You wouldn't believe it. It's, it's awful. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't place the entire problem solely on climate change. For um, sure. We did have, yeah, like it, it definitely is affecting demographics. It's affecting population movements and where people are, are going. Um, but from what I've seen and what I've read, read about it, it doesn't seem to be one of the main exacerbators of the civil war. I think that one of the main exacerbators of the civil war um, lies somewhere between the United States and Russia, to be honest with you. Um, these two uh, hegemonic powers fighting for access to, you know, oil pipelines. That's, that's a whole other, that's a whole other episode of what's happening yes. geopolitically. Um, um, and it, it does have a lot to do with access uh, and securing oil uh, from the Gulf rather than from Russia, specifically to Europe, because Russia supplies the most oil to Europe at this moment and Europe doesn't, and America don't, doesn't want that to be the case. Um, so climate change that's, effect, that's affecting both Syria and Iraq, specifically in terms of drought um, and an inability to grow as much as they used to. Very interesting. Yeah, I was just curious about that because I know there's so many competing influencing narratives around these topics and it's it's hard to wrap our minds around it. Yeah, it's a complicated region. It's a complicated region for people who live there, for people who mm -hmm. are from there. I mean, yeah. for me, when, when I have to read an article about Syria or Iraq, it's like an alphabet soup. I have to stop every th third sentence and mm. Google search what an acronym is. Like, what is new political yeah. parties, new factions, everything is sprouting up every single day, it feels yeah. like. So, Especially yeah, if it's, you it's only speak or read and write or read in English. Mm. Yeah, that yeah. is another complication because a lot of times you'll get different news and different analysis if you're reading things in Arabic as well. So that also complicates things for English speakers and English readers. Right. 
Right. Um, are there any final thoughts, anything that either of you want to add before we close out? I, I think that I just, you know, I, what, what I want people to start thinking about in terms of a left, a more leftist socialist framework for foreign policy is how much to engage um, in regions where we don't have a lot of experience, we don't have a lot of context, and we don't have an all, a lot of knowledge about, mm. and whose voices we choose to uplift and listen to. Um, you know, it's it's very frustrating being being a minoritized uh, from a minoritized group in the Middle East. You know, I grew up in in a world where, you know, my supremacists weren't. You know, in my history, were Arabs, were Turks. Um, we had different supremacists. That, that, that oppressed and marginalized us. We had different, a totally different context for colonialism. It, it wasn't Europe until the last century. It was Eastern peoples, right? So, you know, it's, it's very important to, to know and understand what Western, um, whatever that really means, Western imperialism and colonialism has done throughout the world. But it is a bit narrow to only view the world through the eyes of Western imperialism because, you know, the Middle East, uh, you know, Africa, all of Asia, that's had civilizations long before America was a thing. And because of that, it has its own history of imperialism that has nothing to do with Europe. It has nothing to do with the British, nothing to do with the French, nothing to do with the United States. It, It has its own complicated web of imperialist and colonialist history. Um, sometimes having to do with religion, sometimes having to do with tribes, um, often having to do with kingdoms and empires. Assyrians were one of them. You know, you know um, we did our own imperialism, you know, a few thousand years ago. I mean, everybody did. So our context and our worldview is different than, than what is, is seen in the West. And of course, now the problem is Western imperialism, mainly, but they also do work in concert with those powerful groups elsewhere in the world who also view themselves as the superior power, the superior, the superior colonial colonizers. So in, in developing any type of opinion or framework for how to approach a particular foreign policy question, I think it's important to take into account that the, your context might not be the right context within, your, within which you're working. So you have to consider Maybe there's more to this that I don't understand. There's certainly a longer history that I might not understand. Um, how do I go about listening to what's happening on the ground from the people who are the least powerful? Thank you. Miriam, anything else to add? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, Willie just said that really well. I think, I think context really, really matters. And, you know, historical, political, cultural context matters. Um, that's not to say that American imperialism hasn't been so um, disastrous for so many peoples across the globe, uh, including West Asia. But it is very important to look at um, before that, because our stories begin before that. Right. And so that's the mm-hmm. difference between looking who you're looking at. If you are looking at. Uh, West Asia as in uh, as in Arabs, right? And a lot of times it's called the Arab world or the Muslim world, which is also erases us, right? Mm. Um, then then yeah, for sure, the most the most disastrous form of imperialism has been uh, European and then American. Yeah. But then when you change right. your 
when you shift your focus to the to the margins, right? And so because this is a thing, marginal marginality is relational, right? Like that's not to say that Arabs haven't been and uh, and you know and other people in the Middle East haven't been um, subjected to uh, European and American imperialism. Absolutely, they have. Right. What I'm saying is then relationally speaking, the ones are who are even on the margins in West Asia, like Assyrians, then that well, their imperialist story begins before Europe. I mean, mind you, European imperialism also, you know, was really disastrous for us. <laughs> but what I'm saying is yeah. when you when you then when you look at the powerless, right, then we become our story goes back further, but we also then become under a layer of European-American imperialism, but then also Arab and Kurdish forms of imperialism as well, right? So, and which which yeah. continues today. So it's, that's really, really important when you're, and that's the difference then, right? When you're looking at the margins and the powerless, it just tells you a different story. It tells you a more complicated story. It tells you a more nuanced story, right? And so, and it's often a lot right. more accurate. It, it's more accurately yeah. depicting to you how power is operating, right? Um, yeah. And who's yeah. being affected it by is, this. It is Americans celebrating the American Revolution and their independence from the British versus the indigenous nations of North America going, I'm sorry, what? Um, Absolutely. We have a whole other history and yeah. a whole other viewpoint <laughs> of who our colonizers are. And it wasn't, yeah. it didn't start with a fish. Um, it started with you people. So, yeah. so that's, that's the thing, like shifting your context and looking at those marginalized voices gives you a whole different story and a whole different context and a whole different set of solutions even yes. of how to approach something. Exactly. Because once you define something, once you define context and your problem and whatever else, then your policies change, your solutions change. Even you can imagine different outcomes even, Right. Uh, yes, another world is possible, but you have to first redefine your context. You have to be willing to get out of that um, colonial box, right? And have to look at a, a wider picture, a more complicated picture. Thank you both so, 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 so much, um, Miriam and Melita, for coming on, sharing your knowledge and um, bringing light to this, like, very complicated, but also not talked about um, topic. So we really, really appreciate taking the time on your Saturday morning to to come on and chat with us. Thank you so much for having Thank you. us. This was a really it's great conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Yay. I'm so proud that Walida came to us to do this episode and Walida that you trusted us to do it. I think this is such an important conversation to have. And I think that, you know, whether or not it's about West Asia, questions about how to place myself in international questions. Uh, I'm saying the word questions a lot, but yeah, <laughs> I, I think a lot about how to organize my thoughts on that. And this is super helpful for me. And I know it's going to be helpful for our listeners. Um, so thank you so much. Awesome. awesome. I was happy to do thank it. You. And you were the perfect venue for this. You uplift the voices that nobody else listens to. So, so thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Have a nice day. Thanks. You too. <laughs> Let's conclude this bitch. 
let's conclude this bitch <laughs> let's conclude it <laughs> so thanks again to our amazing guests what is that voice? <laughs> I was just going off of what you were doing. But as always, uh, different. Oh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, as always, you can find us on all the social media at Season of the Bay. Yeah. You can email us at uh, Season of the Bay at gmail.com, especially like if you make music. Yeah, we so. love listening to your music. Love it. Uh, but don't be angry. <laughs> but you should know that by now. Uh, I feel like I'm I'm being Gosh. Kathleen Hanna right now because she like owned a Valley Girl accent and was like the smartest fucking person. So don't yeah. hate on people who talk like this. I, I I just want people to know like we're doing this as a silly thing, but it's not making fun of anyone who talks like this because people can talk however they want to talk. And also, sometimes I pretend to have a British accent, but <laughs> so so I just yes I agree. Just Can because you give I'm us a that... preview, please. Oi! No, <laughs> <laughs> you made me feel embarrassed. <laughs> I was just really ready for it. I was just like really ready for I just it. Really, just wanted to like go into it. <laughs> amazing uh yeah as we said in the beginning you can get tickets on season of the for the live show you can always rate review subscribe on itunes we got some merch on our website as well uh we will be bringing merch to the live show mm. that's true i think that's it this is the silliest conclusion i love it i love it yeah i love it and i love you Love you, dear. Have the best rest of your day. You too. And everybody else have a good day too. Season of the bitch. <laughs>